Hey there, nature lovers. How you doing this week? I hope it's good. This week, we're really excited about this episode. We're going to have a lot of fun this week. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, fascination. My name is CJ, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host. That's me, Matt. How are you this week, Matt? Um, I'm going to be honest. Somehow, my weeks keep getting worse today. Oh, no. I stepped on, what was it, like a pin or something from a, that was left over from a... I was literally leading camp, okay? I was leading camp, and yesterday... We had to pick up a ton of stuff left over from a wedding that completely trashed the place. Um, the place I work also rents out the house. It's part nature center, part house for rental. They trashed the outdoor lawn and we had to pick up a ton of stuff yesterday. And that was that was annoying. And then today I was out and listeners, you may have heard about my little Tetris episode where I stepped on a nail and that was fun. I stepped on a like a pin from a boutonniere that was left on the ground and that kind of shot right in and I was like, nice, you know, that ended up in my foot too. And I almost swore in front of like a six year old and it was a, a whole thing. I mean, it's a good thing you already got the te- the tennis shot. I know. I was like, man, it's a really good thing. But I'm starting to get worried. Like, did I do something wrong? Like, it's me. I've been cursed. No, you've been cursed. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You, you've, mm. you've upset somebody enough to where they've cursed you. Yeah, it's pretty rough. But other than that, you know, past week, I've had a couple moth-related events. Uh, you saw my moth week content. And that's all going to be coming out on my regular, too. Because, like, it was really cool. And it's just nice to be able to lead events and, like, be able to do that again. Yeah, we we love moth content. By we, I mean Matt does. I do. I really like. You know, Matt really took the lead on Moth Week this week this year. So I didn't tell anyone I was doing it either. It kind of happened. Nobody it was, was like, informed that Moth Week was the content, but nobody's mad about it. I was like, this is happening. I've been okay this week. I uh, actually yesterday uh, on August first got a chance to go to um, a local uh, bar slash brewery and get some piping plover themed beer, which was very exciting. So I got an extra case for my friend, Matt Valaga. I don't know if you know him. He's a host of the birdie bunch podcast. Yeah. Uh, he's a, he's a big fan of both piping plovers and beer. Yeah. The, so. the local, the, the local Mothman, the local beer drinker, you know, local bird boy. Hi, Claire. In addition this week, before we kind of jump into anything else, I did want to mention really quickly, I had the unbelievable honor to meet in person our good friend Krista Rolls of the Birding Tools podcast. So Krista was in Chicago very briefly. Something came up here in Chicago and we got to meet up, which was absolutely phenomenal. Thanks, Krista. It was so lovely to see you. You're so wonderful. I'm Um, upset. (laughs) I was so fortunate to have taken this week off, too. (laughs) Ranger Matt. (laughs) It, It really just came up. So... Thank you so much, Krista. You're wonderful. Yeah. Now that since we've had uh, some time to just chat about what's been going on, let's jump into our first segment of the podcast, and that is our creature feature. Ka-chow! So our creature feature for this week, as I tease later in the episode... <laughs> 
really a posthumous tease. Yeah. As I tease later in the episode, is a bird that's pretty relevant to our guest this week. Um, and no, it's not the green cheek conure. Sorry about that, Jinx. But it is, in fact, the uh, species that is the logo of the Citizine Welfare Institute. I am talking specifically about the hyacinth macaw. The hyacinth macaw is the largest species of macaw, and it's this really beautiful blue color. They have this beautiful, beautiful body of blue feathers, this solid black beak, and this yellow that's circling their eyes and the lower part of their beak. They are gorgeous, smart, and just really, really big parrots. They nest in pre-existing holes in trees and can have a clutch between two and three eggs. And as you may have suspected, in the past, hyacinth macaws were much more common. In the 80s, they were captured by the thousands and commercialized as a cage bird. So during that time, their population in their region dropped to about 1,500 birds. The Hyacinth Macaw Project, which began in the 90s, helped to triplicate the local population. And nowadays, over 5,000 specimens live there, which is the majority of the Brazilian population, in an amazing recovery of one of the most spectacular birds in the world. The Hyacinth Macaw eat mostly little coconuts from the Akuri Bocavia palm trees. So they basically just eat these little palm nuts. And they feed on these clusters that come down from the palm trees pretty much exclusively. They can go down on the ground to eat these fallen coconuts, including those that have been eaten by cows that have been eliminated in their feces, having already lost their outer pulp. So they are really, really dedicated to this specific diet. The coexistence of these macaws and cattle um, is really interesting in terms of their welfare and how we can translate some of their wild behaviors into their now large life in captivity with many of these macaws being kept as pets. Parrots, especially the hyacinth macaw because of their size, can be really challenging to live with because they haven't been domesticated for thousands of years in the way that dogs and cats have. They're still wild animals and they have adaptations that allow them to live in the wild. So to make sure you can properly care for your uh, parrot of any kind, welfare is a really key need. That's kind of all that I got on the hyacinth macaw. Matt, what are your thoughts? You know, I think it's important when we talk about some of these species is that you look at parrots and a lot of people see pets, right? Like this kind of something that we've associated with them. And this creature feature, as well as our interview later, kind of, well, take the time to kind of put it into perspective a little bit as to how they're not cats and dogs. And there are so many species that like we have now that also aren't cats and dogs. Like, for example, fish, you know, it's such a commodified kind of thing, but a lot of, you know, exotic fish and stuff like that aren't domesticated, you know, and it really kind of makes this scenario a little bit more complicated, a little bit more interesting. It's very exciting that we'll be able to talk about some of that with our later on guest, just because I think it's important to recognize what we're dealing with. You know, you can't give something the best care if you're not treating it like what it is. You have to rationalize with what, you know, the same thing with people. You can't treat someone right if you're not treating them the way they want to be treated or the way they are and it's just like it's such an interesting conundrum that we have in society right now that we kind of need to rectify a little bit and it's very exciting that we will be able to and take the time to later on today yeah that's a really beautiful point to wrap us up on matthew thank you so much let's move into our next segment for the day which is nature in the news we're talking current events <music> Thank you. 
so my current event is a little bit out of date, but I stumbled upon it on accident. I find it to be fascinating. Um, it was published June 15th, so it's not, you know, not antiquated or anything like that, but it's kind of important to, I think, look at because it's a little complicated. So it's from MangaBay.com. You've heard me talk about them before. I love MangaBay. I think it's a great news source, and they tell things in such a fascinating way. And the title is Climate Change Isn't Fueling Algal Blooms the Way We Think, study shows. And this is a really interesting study going on um, where they're evaluating HABs, which is the acronym for harmful algal blooms, which um, red tide is one of them, if you've ever heard of that. Essentially, a harmful algal bloom is an algal bloom that ends up having a negative impact upon the ecosystem around it. So essentially there's these toxic algae that will build up. They come into mass amounts and a lot of them will release neurotoxins or something like that. They can harm or kill animals. Um, even people, if they get involved in it, Florida is really, really big about this with that red tide, like I mentioned, and they are really causing a lot of issues with conservation in general right like the red tide that happened in florida a couple of years back it didn't recede until winter of 2018 and 2019 it's like that's almost unheard of and so a long time you know there's been this constant belief that as climate change accelerates and weather gets warmer and climate gets warmer these will just also happen to be more intense more common you know just like we see with a lot of things but Studies are showing actually that it's not just a one off and it's not really showing a global trend, a global trend, mind you, that suggests that climate change is having a uniform increase on these HABs, these harmful algal blooms. This is really kind of interesting because it complicates the way that we look at climate change in the realm of harmful algal blooms, right? Like the science makes sense that there would be some connection. Warmer water allows itself to more algae growth and proliferates that. That's, you know, well known and documented. But because it's not a global trend, we're not seeing the same thing happening all the time. It's a much more complex story than we thought. And it makes the communication of this issue in retrospect with climate change also really hard. You know, it's very easy to come out and say climate change is increasing harmful algal blooms. But if it's not doing it uniformly, it's hard to make that blanket statement. And it means that there's more investigation that needs to go in. You know, it's like it's having direct impacts on some places, but not others. So, OK, what else does this mean? What else is in the scenario that we're not looking at? So it's a really interesting thing. And it's the first global assessment of this happening. So it's not as if there's, you know, full data. And it's like we cracked the code. You know, it's this is a new area of science we're coming into but it's important to note sometimes that this is really uh, a growing field especially because these HABs in the past three or four years especially like I said in red tide with Florida these have been really big mainstays in the news and this is only going to keep happening if we don't figure this out so the process is going we're all trying to figure it out and there's a lot of good research going, but it's really interesting, like I said, that it's not what we thought it was. So not necessarily the only thing. It's not just climate. So a really important distinction that came out, I thought it was fascinating because I've admittedly done some limnological study, which is the study of inland 
aquatic ecosystems, looking at algae and how that goes with different nutrients and temperature as well. So like, it's something that intrigues me, but it's a really complex phenomenon that is worth looking into and we will be. So, I mean, if I find updates, I'll put it up, but basically don't, don't swim in this stuff. It's bad for you. Like, please don't. I really appreciate you kind of explaining that because I feel like I knew nothing about that. So that was really educational for me. And I hope that you learned something too, listeners, because that was really fabulous. So thanks for sharing that, Matt. My current event this week comes to us from The Guardian, and it is titled Fears for Gang Gang Cockatoos as Numbers Plummet After Fires. So the Gang Gang Cockatoo, which is in, in the animal emblem for the Australian Capital Territory, ACT, where Canberra, their capital is, considered to be listed as a threatened species after the 2019-2020 bushfires. Um, and it reduced this already declining population by numbers over 20%. So the Gang Gang Cockatoo is a small gray cockatoo found throughout southeastern Australia. Adult males are known for their distinctive red facial feathers. And they're a common sight in Canberra, which, like I said, is the Australian capital, where they're often found in backyards, in the inner suburbs, and in the nearby bushland reserves. The Threatened Species Scientific Committee has recommended that this small cockatoo be listed as endangered due to this large drop in population and the growing threat that the birds face from the climate crisis and more frequent fires. In its listing advice, which is now up for public consultation, the committee said that before the fires, gang gang populations had already declined between 15 and 69%. In the years since the fires, their numbers were thought to have declined by a further 21%. That is expected to reach 29% over the next two decades. The listing assessment says increased heat waves and fire frequency as a result of the climate emergency were increasing pressure on the species across its range with bushfires likely to reduce the amount of nesting habitat available to these birds. Samantha Vine, who is the head of conservation and science at BirdLife Australia, said that glossy black cockatoos and gang-gangs were among many birds that were heavily affected by the bushfires. Vine is quoted saying, sadly, they're likely to be the harbingers of things to come as irrelated climate and biodiversity emergencies escalate. She said the gang-gang's plight was particularly concerning, having gone from being unlisted straight to a recommended for an endangered listing, which is just one step away from critically endangered. So really a uh, big plight for the gang gang cockatoo, which is one of my absolute favorite animals of all time. Yeah, this is not encouraging news at all. Sometimes conservations like that, you know, we've mentioned that before, but it is encouraging to know that the problem has been diagnosed. There's a, there is a face to the issue surrounding gang gang cockatoos, just as with so many species around the world. And with that comes the ability to flagship a kind of effort to go towards the conservation of these. You know, putting a species to a problem saves so many other species. And we talked about it in good and bad and re referring to charismatic megafauna. But if you can connect people to these birds, you can connect people to these problems. And so in doing so, it does give us a chance to sit down and really make a concerted effort into the conservation of these awesome birds. You know, I've never had the chance to see any, and I would like to, but it gives us a chance to do something. Now all you have to do is go and do it. So it's up to us, Birdie Bunch listeners, to save the gang gang cockatoo. Welcome into our gang gang, you know. Be a part of the gang gang gang, if you will. Yeah, yeah, the gang 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 gang. 
Yeah, I really like the way that you've worded that, Matt. I think that really ties into something we're going to get into with our main topic. So for our main topic this week, it was really exciting. We were able to have Gabe Cation on the podcast. Gabe is one of my favorite people to talk to of all time. And I'm really glad that he was able to be a guest in the podcast this week. So Gabe is going to talk to us all about animal welfare and husbandry. So let's cut to that interview right now. We're here now with Gabe Kaysen. Gabe, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. My name is Gabe. My pronouns are he, him. And yeah, I've been a zoological profession for the, a professional for the last 10 years. Um, I started a nonprofit dedicated to parrot welfare uh, and just an overall giant bird enthusiast um, and animal enthusiast too. So I'm really excited to be here on the podcast and to kind of explain, at least from my perspective as someone in the field, you know, what we can kind of uncover about animals and birds. So I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, not a better guest for the Birdie Bunch podcast than a bird lover. <laughs> so we love to hear that. Well, t tell us a little bit about what is welfare. What is husbandry? Talk us through that. Sure. So, gosh, how long do you have? Um, so I guess I'll start with welfare <laughs> because husbandry kind of goes from there. So I'll explain the more scientific definition of welfare, and then we'll break it down to something that's a, a little bit more digestible. So scientifically, when we look at welfare, we're looking at an individual organism's uh, homeostatic relationship with their environment and breaking it down into simplistic terms. Really, we're looking at an animal's well-being and we're measuring that by looking at the individual and their environment. So what I always like to kind of describe is that if you're looking at the well-being of an animal, if you have an animal that's really healthy, really young, doing great, checks all the boxes, but it's in a poor environment, that animal might have poor welfare. And on the reverse side of that, if you have everything right, all the checks for environmental conditions, but you have an animal that has a genetic disorder uh, or something that is preventing it internally from really maximizing their well-being, that animal would also have poor welfare. So you have the individual and you have the environment, and you look at those two together to figure out how well the animal is coping with this environment. And that's welfare. And the importance of welfare is everywhere. Um, you know, in the in zoos, um, we use welfare uh, exams and reviews in order to make sure that we're meeting all of our criteria to make sure the animals are living their best lives. In the wild, similar things can be done, although we can dive into that further, how that's a little more difficult in the wild, absolutely. And then even at home, you know, it's, it's less formalized, but it's important to companion pet owners too, how good their welfare of their animals is. And the good news is it's all trending upwards um, across the fields. Everything is trending upwards, but we, we have a long ways to go. And how we achieve good welfare is husbandry. Husbandry is essentially how we're taking care of animals in a captive setting. Captive can mean a lot of things. It can mean that you're on some kind of wilderness preserve where it's very partially managed, or it can be you know, like my bird at home, fully managed, 100% immersed in human care and how we are increasing their welfare through things like diet, uh, through things like training, through things like their enclosure and enrichment. So really husbandry is how we get to good welfare and welfare is how we improve their overall well-being. So you talk a lot about um, welfare and husbandry and I think you know, all that work is super important, especially where CJ and I come from, um, a very zoological background of growing up in the zoo field, like 
you know, zoos and aquariums and all that stuff. And that was kind of our background. And I was wondering how kind of your past and your trajectory as a zoological professional has led you to the point where you are today. Like, what's the story behind that? Sure. That's a great question. Um, and it's an important one for everyone out there who's thinking of going into this profession to kind of figure out as far as their trajectory goes. And because you'll probably be asked this question on an interview as well, but my personal trajectory, you know, it started off with a, a deep curiosity, uh, being young and being very fortunate to have a family that traveled quite a bit and immersed me in nature. Uh, and a dog with about 30 or a dog, a house with about 30 dogs um, in it. So I was always surrounded by animals. I was always surrounded by nature. And I had this, my mom's a teacher and she fostered this natural curiosity. So I kind of had all of the things going for me from a young age, um, was really interested in animals, really kind of fell in love with education, fell in love with with animal care and uh, environmentalism and wasn't really sure where I wanted to go with that. And so I ended up kind of skating between the two worlds between education and animal care uh, until I did my first stint as a seasonal keeper at Brookfield Zoo. And that's when I really just fell head over heels in love with animal training. And that's the, that's the thing that did me in. And I, I think that everyone at some point in their career, whether it's animal care or otherwise, will find something that just fundamentally speaks to them that kind of fuels that passion. And I think when you're young, you can be super passionate about something, but it, it, there's, it, they can grow so much. And I know for me personally, like the other side of it is I'm really competitive too. I really, I think that's something we don't talk about in this field, but zookeeping is an incredibly competitive field and I want to be the best at what I do. And so I listen to podcasts on my drives home and I'm constantly taking webinars when I don't have to. I'm always looking for what I can do to improve myself. And pretty much all of the best keepers I've ever worked with are lifelong learners and people that want to continue to grow and learn. So for me, when you look at animal care, there's so many things that you can kind of do. There's such a width of knowledge. And when I found these little niches like training and welfare and behavior for me specifically, that's when the fires really started going because I'm like, this is something that I feel like I can fill a role that not everyone in this field can. And for some people, that's very specific species. Um, so my welfare organization is about parrots. So in, in, in some ways, that's also a, a niche that I found is citizens, but also behavior and welfare. And I think that, you know, starting off as a generalist with a general of animals is great, but eventually I feel like we all kind of hone in on exactly what we want to do to contribute to the betterment of them. Yeah, that's a really beautiful kind of way to describe it, right? Like finding your spark within like the field that you love. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I think that everyone who listens can maybe find some kind of relation to that in some regard, which is really beautiful. Um, you talked a little bit about training. Tell us more about training. What's that like? What's that experience? How does that work? Sure. Um, well, for those of you who have trained, you know, your pets at home, you probably know a little bit about training. And I can attest from, you know, my lucky experience to work in several ambassador departments in zoos that every single species is like starting from square one. It's really like wipe the slate clean, drop all your preconceived notions about what you think training is because the moment you step in, you know, the training arena with a bird for the first time, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a real test. So um, training is great. You know, training is how we achieve so much of our husbandry and welfare goals. Um, and it's really the key to unlocking like the future of progressive animal care. Uh, and I'll give a specific example for that. 
I worked with four American guinea hogs at one of the um, institutes that I formerly worked at. And they were weighed on a scale through a pretty chaotic method, which was just kind of throwing food on there. And they just ran around and it's like, oh, one got on there. All right, get the weight, hurry, quick. Um, and you know, through training, we were able to really organize things to line them up and to have them voluntarily go onto the scale. Um, in addition, because of our success with that, we were actually able to continue training to where we got them to voluntarily, voluntarily accept vaccination as well. So think of going to a doctor and getting a shot in your shoulder. Pigs don't like that very much. So we had to use training and slow approximations to the point where they would see the needle, see the doctor and say, okay, I can do that because I know that what I'm going to get in return for that is something positive. And that reduces a ton of stress on the animal. So training is really amazing. It's how we, it's how we make these steps in communication to the animals to make them understand and thrive in human care. And, you know, I kind of say that like behavior is the language that we speak when we train. And so much of like, when I grew up, I wanted to talk to animals. That was like the superpower I always wanted. And training is definitely that. It's a language of, of body language. You know, that's that's how we're speaking to each other. But ultimately, that's the goal is to communicate to the animal and for the animal to communicate back to you. Um, and just a final note on training, because I know that the listeners, uh, the Birdie Bunch podcast would be super interested in bird specific training, is that, you know, the big reason I fell in love with birds was actually because of training. And I worked with a really, really old, in fact, I think at the time it was probably the oldest turkey vulture in North America at one of the facilities that I worked with. And she was a very special animal because basically when you went to step her up, she would walk closer and closer to you and just kind of feel you out. And if you were new and kind of scared of her and she saw that, and she knew that she could take advantage of you, she'd step even closer and closer and closer and say, mm, that cartilage on your ear looks really good. Um, but of course, you know, we were trained to instinctively kind of raise our arms slightly and for her to then displace herself back up. And, you know, we could dive into the whole methodology of, of that training technique. But the point is for me, it was a new experience where I was working with an animal that fundamentally understood that despite I was a human, I was also an individual and an individual that had not earned her trust. And therefore she was going to push me to the limits. And the great thing is that as soon as we form that connection, form that trust, we were best friends. And every time I stepped her up, she'd be like, oh yeah, you're cool. And then I would turn around and you know, the new hire who's stepping her up, she's running, you know, down their arm, hissing. And so it's like starting from school runs. So to have that special connection that's very individual and not just I'm a human, I'm food, but to understand, you know, as a bird that this person means something different than other people was totally mind-blowing and is something that has been pretty true for most birds that I've worked with and trained across the spectrum. Really, really awesome animals. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. I was going to ask a question, Matt. Did you have a question? Oh, no, I had a connection. Okay, share your connection. Yeah, you know, that's a, actually a very amusing story. Um, we lump animals into species as groups and as families and genera all the time. But like, kind of like how Chris Allieri talked last week with the piping plovers, they are all individuals and they all have their different personas. And like, the ability to find that is such a beautiful part of animal training and husbandry and like learning about the species you're caring for. Gabe, this specifically is kind of what I, why I wanted to bring you on the podcast. You and I have had conversations of individuality versus species. And I really loved your take on it 
uh, like I, Matt mentioned, we talked with Chris last week, and he mentioned specifically talking about like the plovers that are seen on the beaches and how people just see them as a species, but really each one is, you know, we know them, we know their tags, we know them individually. Talk to us about species versus an individual in terms of welfare. Sure. So, you know, I think that the conversations that CJ and I had were, were really interesting because we were, we were trying to kind of dive deeper into looking at why we do things. And scientifically, uh, there's a lot of focus because this is how science works. You focus on the how. You don't really focus on the why. So, But when you have mission-based organizations, I find that the why becomes incredibly important. And so we were kind of honing in on the why of conservation. And the why of conservation is in its name. It's to conserve the natural state of things. And we kind of started dissecting, well, isn't change the natural state of things too? So, you know, you can go down this rabbit hole, but the point isn't to, to make any criticisms of what we're doing because we're doing great work. And that's that's there's no doubt about that. The work in conservation we're doing is really important. But from a welfare perspective, it is an interesting question because welfare is individual it's it's only measured on the individual level and if you have a group of 20 flamingos and you're doing a welfare assessment and you look at the environmental conditions alone and then the group as a whole there still might be one flamingo in that group that does not have good welfare and you might miss it if you only look at the whole group so welfare is always n equals one at the individual level now you know, for me personally, I think that welfare is probably the metric that we need to look at most closely when it comes to animals. And that's across the board for me. So the animal field is really vast. And I have worked, I've had the, you know, fortune of working in a lot of different fields from shelters to uh, vet hospitals, uh, to zoos and aquariums, and with people in their homes with their companion animals. And across the board, welfare is the one thing that pretty much anywhere you go, anytime we're connected in some regard with animals, this is something that's really important that we need to pay attention to. And I think, you know, when it comes to questions about conserving a species, you know, I think that there's, there's so much, there's so much gray area. Um, and I'll give a quick example just to illustrate my point, which is like invasive species, or you look, could look at weeds, or you could look at introducing predators, you know, in non-native habitats to, to reduce prey numbers. There's, there's so much gray area because every, like change is the nature of nature, but also change can vastly tip the scales. Welfare is something that's a lot more consistent. And it's something that we have actual, like a metric for we can look at that and say, we want the highest, like that's our goal as highest welfare possible. And I would just be interested in fostering a conversation to say, Hey, we know that as empathetic beings, you know, humans, homo sapiens are really lucky that we're one of the few species that have gained evolutionarily the ability to have empathy. And it almost gives us a responsibility to understand that other animals can suffer to alleviate that suffering in the world. And so we know this clearly with animals in our care because we're like their bosses, right? We're, we're responsible directly because they're under human management. But I think we also have a responsibility to look at wild welfare as well and welfare of animals in the wild. And I'll give a really quick example of that, which is, you know, my specialty is looking at citizen welfare or parrot welfare. Um, one species, uh, or I guess one vast genre, are uh, cockatoos in Australia. And studies recently have shown that in the wild, they're actually 
finding specimens that are, are pretty emaciated and not doing really well health-wise. And they're hypothesizing that the reason for this is because the natural flora of the region is not actually like their native food. So even wild parrots are not eating wild diets anymore because we have changed the landscape so much that now we have animals that are not thriving even in their, their natural environments. And I think the, the unfortunate question has to come down to, you know, coexistence is the only solution. How are we going to coexist? And I think conservation efforts are the first and foremost frontline important efforts to try to create some kind of separation between us. But the truth is down the line, we very well might be looking at coexistence in a different way through parks, through facilities, through zoos. And that might be the only chance that these animals have of coexistence, which is why welfare becomes so important. We need to ask these questions now. We need to find the answers now and implement it now so that if it comes to that, like so many current endangered species where zoos and aquariums are their last refuge that we're prepared to give them a life that is as good and if not, in my personal opinion, should be better than what they have in the wild. I really like that idea of wild welfare. Like I said, last time we talked, Gabe, we talked extensively all about that. So we'll definitely have to come back to that, you and I, at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. But any other thoughts just on, you know, welfare, husbandry, and how, like, our listeners can maybe learn more about it or things that they can do to improve the welfare of their pets or, you know, advocate for things in zoos, things like that? Sure. You know, from my my rant just now, there was one key point that, that I thought could be important to mention as well. And if there's any two takeaways, you know, from listening to this, I'll leave it at these two. I think that as a society, nature is wonderful. I love nature. I love hiking. I love being outside. But we, we really romanticize nature for animals. I, we have to remember that we are gigantic like omnivorous, you know, primates that, that have like, think of a gorilla, like a gorilla is not spending its day worried about like being preyed upon or a shortage of food. That's the whole point of being a big primate is you have plenty of food and you have no predators. So our perception of nature is very different than most animals. And the truth of what happens in nature is pretty hardcore. It's pretty brutal. So I think when we look to the future, I think that we really need to have an appreciation for what nature is, but also to kind of ask, you know, is nature necessarily the pinnacle of our comparison for welfare, right? Like, do we have to mimic perfectly nature or should we actually go a little bit above because, you know, birds specifically have a very, 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 very high infant mortality rate. So is that something that's really you know, something we need to replicate that's for the best for the animals, or is it maybe something different? Um, so that's the first point I would make. And then the second is that welfare is changing and we're all wrong. We're all wrong all the time and it's okay. It's it's perfectly okay. I was younger and I had turtles and I did not take good care of them. And, and that's just something that because of the resources I had being at that age and not understanding the commitment of them, that, that that's just how it turned out. And the the real way to champion welfare is to be willing to grow and to learn. And I think that a big part of our organization, Citizen Welfare Institute, is trying to provide people with a safe space where they can learn for free what best practices are that are based 
on science because there's a lot of anecdotal information out there. Everyone is an expert in animals. If you go on Facebook or YouTube, it's really about getting the best information out there. So be curious and, and don't be satisfied with what you have because I can guarantee you that as someone that lives with another zoological professional at home, we take great great, great care of our animals. And nearly every day we think of something we could be doing better. So never be satisfied. There's always something that you could be doing better. And that's not a point of guilt. I mean, that that's the human experience is to learn and grow. And as long as we share these ideas with each other, we'll continue to do so as a society. You know, I think that's a really crazy cool answer that kind of fits in line with what we do. Because I know CJ said this a lot, but like, you don't have to do everything as long as you take one step, like every single little step that you take to make yourself better amalgamates into making the whole world a better place. And that's not just restricted to, you know, what we talk about, but also husbandry, as you kind of mentioned. And I think that's a really beautiful kind of crossover point. You know, I would encourage you to actually look at my newest project, which is, which is the Citizen Welfare Institute. I'm working with two other amazing zookeeper professionals that are all crazy bird nerds. Um, we love parrots a whole lot. And we recognize that they probably are dealing with a crisis that we don't really fully understand at this point, just simply due to how intelligent they are um, and the conditions that they're currently in. So we have a lot of great free resources if you're a parrot owner um, to look at welfare in kind of a new light and see what you could be doing to uh, be better for your bird. And that's going to be found at citizen.org, which I will spell because I don't expect anyone to know how that's spelled. It's P-S-I-T-T-A-C-I-N-E dot O-R-G. We also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group um, if there are any professionals out there that are interested in contributing to our group. And of course, people are feel free to look me up on any social media platform and send me a message if you're interested in learning more about how you can help parrots in the wild or in captivity. I definitely recommend to our listeners to check out that Facebook page, the Facebook group, check out their website. I'm in that Facebook group and I think that there's like, I don't know, I'm not a parrot owner, but I just love parrots and I just learned so much. So Parrot lovers are out. welcome too. Parrot lovers are welcome too. If you just if you want to learn, if you're an expert, yeah. it's 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 welcome for all. All the resources are free. I want to say that you know, as someone that has been in this field for a long time and has worked with parrots for a long time, there's so many great resources out there. I could name a lot of names, but but some of them cost money. You know, some people definitely have a price tag on their skills. And one of the important things with our organization is we want it to be accessible to everyone because it's one of the biggest hurdles for some people that live in certain you know home situations that finances are their biggest hurdle to giving good welfare. So we wanted to help as much as we can. Gabe, unbelievably enough, we actually have a little bit of extra time. I did good, right? I You're really good. I, I... <laughs> uh, if you have any questions for us, you are welcome to ask us questions. Usually we have extra time. We'll have our guests ask us questions. Ooh, okay. Let me think for a second. Yeah. Take your time. Do you guys have a favorite species of parrot? Oh, immediately. It's the gang gang, obviously. Oh, yeah. It's the gang gang. Gang 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 all the way. Gang 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 all the way. <laughs> Personally, I, I'm i partial to the ma Major Mitchell's cockatoo. You know, just coming from Brookfield, you know, Cookie the mm -hmm. cockatoo. For those who don't know, Cookie the cockatoo was like a cockatoo at the Brookfield Zoo who was like around since like the beginning. Like, it was like eighty seven or something. Yeah, like, like I think what the zoo opened in like what nineteen thirty four. Yeah, yeah. 
And they were um, an adult too when, when they were added to the collection. So the real age, we yeah. don't even really know. Yeah, That's like wild. it's insanity. And that was like the bird that got me into birds, I'd probably say. So that's really where it kind of started for me. What about you, Gabe? Favorite, favorite yeah. parrot? That's a great question. You know, I have, I definitely have dream species that I really <laughs> would, would like to work with in the future that I haven't yet. The eclectus is one for sure. That's, oh, yeah. it's, that would be really interesting from a husbandry perspective. And of course, the hyacinth macaw, I think for, for all parrot people is, is a pretty big staple. Paul is, that, Pocket- is that not the logo of the session? It is. Yes, that, that's our logo. And I think, reason, I think I'll make that the creature feature for this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reason we chose it as the logo too is because they're the biggest of all of them and their husbandry needs are really advanced. So we wanted to pick an animal that really encapsulated how, like kind of the high bar we wanted to set because in the wild, basically all they do are eat like palm nuts. They eat all like a hundred percent lipid diet basically. And, <laughs> and it's absolutely insane. And you know, replicating, oh God, do I really want to get into parrot diet? Probably not. But replicating their diet in captivity is so difficult. There's just so many hurdles. And so for me as a professional, as me that's interested in their welfare and our coexistence, that's super fascinating. But for the average person, it's an enormous task. And I guess I'll just, I'll kind of finish with one last point that I thought of talking about our favorite species, which is that, you know, for me, another thing that that's so important to remember when it comes to animals besides dogs and cats, especially ones that coexist with us at home, is that there are so many breeds of dogs and cats, but they're all actually one species. They're all one species of animal that have been domesticated over a long period of time to coexist with us. There's nearly 400 species of parrot. Every single one of them is as different as like any other species. You know, it's cats and dogs are two different species. You know, a hyacinth and a lorikeet are two different species. There, there's so many differences and yeah. generalizing like parrot care is impossible because there are, there's such wild differences in these animals that are wild animals. They're not domesticated. So it presents an enormous range of troubleshooting at home for these animals, which is why the bar for welfare needs to be set so high. Uh, but there's so many that I love. And I just have to end with the fact that my real favorite is the green cheek conure because I have one at home and she's screaming <laughs> at me in the distance right now because I'm sure she can hear that I did not say green cheek conures are my favorite species. So sorry, Jinx. Green cheek conures are actually my favorite species. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to correct myself too. And so don't you worry about that because I can't believe I overlooked the Pesquets parrot. The Dracula oh, parrot. Yes. You know, I'm gonna throw it back to the spooky bunch. I just love that, like that 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 look. I just I yeah, think it's, it's so good. Guy. It's so good. It's clean. It's slick and Literally so clean. No feathers. I know, right? I mean, that's <laughs> real clean. Gabe, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, I'm really yeah. excited to talk to you always. So, thanks for being here. The pleasure mm-hmm. has been all mine. Thanks to both of you so much. Oh awesome. no! Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Well, let's head back to our episode. Boom. Ka-chow. Nailed it. That was such a lovely interview. Thank you so much, Gabe, for being on the podcast. Again, you are just such a great person and an awesome resource with Citizen Welfare Institute. So check that out, everybody, at citizen.org, P-S-I-T-T-A-C-I-N-E dot O-R-G. Join that Facebook group, like I mentioned. Good stuff. With that out of the way, let's move into our outro. Let's move on to our social meds. Matt, where can you be found on the social meds? 
You'd find me at Matt Valga, M-A-T-T-V's and Victor A-L-I-G-A. Most recent thing you'll probably see from me is either some Moss stuff. I haven't decided yet. It's a week before, so I'll figure it out. Or I spent some time in some wild Chicago hanging out with the Chicago Cubs. You know, it's the first game I've been to in a while. So that's what you'll see from me. You know, I have a life other <laughs> than birds and bugs and all that stuff. And usually it revolves around baseball, I'll wholly admit. So a little bit of a sellout, but I I'm hoping to get more into birds this week um, because I've recently ordered a new lens for my camera. So hopefully I will look some good pictures of Monty and Rose before they fly off for the winter. So maybe I'll post some Monty and Rose pictures soon. And their little chick, chill, chick, 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 little chick, chick, chicks. <laughs> but you can find all of us collectively by all of us. I mean, the two of us at the Birdie Wedge podcast on Instagram, on Facebook, on Instagram and Facebook. And visit our website, thebirdiewenchpodcast.com. And there we post a blog post with a bunch of resources. In that resource guide will be, of course, citizen.org, where uh, Gabe referenced, as well as some other uh, resources made for our creature feature, as well as our current event link. So check those out for sure. Also on our website, you can find our merch store. Matt, you want to talk about something with our merch store? Yeah, so um, last week I made mention of Bob Dolgan partnering up with him for a fundraiser to raise money for the Monty and Rose documentary that's coming out in september and that's all been hashed out so if you go to our website we have a current um special design for wild chicago it says uh wild chicago on it you got the skyline i'm actually really proud of that graphic design i was very happy with it and then on the back it says i'm plovin it you get a pun you get a bird you know you get all that fun stuff and we're raising money to actually provide the closed captioning for the documentary when it comes to tv so this is a really cool thing that we have the chance we work on. I'm so excited. Bob Dolgan has been such a really great guy to work with and figure this stuff out. And I'll be doing some projects with him going forward that I'm not going to spoil, but it's very exciting. And it's just a super cool thing to be involved, like be involved in the Chicago bird community. You know, coming back from Ohio, I was like, how am I going to get back in? You know, and it it's it's been it's been lovely. So I'm very excited to announce that. I'm very passionate about this. It's it like such a fun project. So go check that out if you have the money to afford. We've got it in kid sizes and long sleeve and short sleeve. Um, I think I put it on a hoodie as well. So anything, you know, anything counts, right? So we really appreciate it if you have the chance to take the time and take the money and maybe put it somewhere that we can spread our love for Monty and Rose. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. A thousand percent. And I'm I'm really excited. I actually got to meet Bob Dolgan uh, this past weekend. So it was really nice to see him at the piping plover beer event that I was at, which was really phenomenal. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really proud to be partnered with Matt in some of these things, um, you know, maybe, maybe from the sidelines, but be, Chicago burning has never been better. And getting into it with all of these amazing projects that Matt is a part of and I'm kind of tagged along with has been really, really great. So I'm really proud to be a part of it and have been a, you know, advocate in a lot of these projects too. So thanks so much for sharing that, Matt. If you do have any, you know, additional funds that you can donate or, you know, if you want to grab a shirt, please, please, please do. We are so, so excited about this project. Thanks again for everybody in advance. Y'all are wonderful. Aside from merch, you can visit our Patreon uh, on our Patreon, we have some really cool perks depending on the tier you're in. You can get uh, access to videos or recordings. So you can see us talking to our guests this week. You can see us talking right now, which is really fascinating. 
you can get early access to our uh, podcasts. So that's awesome. You can get unedited access to our podcast. So you'll notice sometimes we have some cut clips. You'll get those unedited, which is really, really great. So give us a chance. In addition, you'll also get a shout on the podcast. So let us know if that's something you'd be interested in by signing up to our Patreon. One thing we do, too, is read out reviews. We don't have any new reviews this week, but if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll read it out live here on the podcast. So leave us a review. We'd love to read it out here on the podcast. Give us your feedback. One last thing that we ask from you is to share this podcast with a friend. If you've learned something new today about animal welfare, you thought Gabe was a really awesome person to talk to, and you want to learn more about all of that, and you think your friend should, share it with them. There's some good stuff they can learn. Please, please, please do. With all of that being said, nature lovers, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Ka-chow. Thank you for sharing your day with us and listening to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would specifically like to thank Sarah Dunlap for creating our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.